Welcome to the Simple Faith Podcast, exploring authentic Christianity for normal people. My name is Dave Betts, and together with my wife, Sherea, we're going to explore all the things that make our faith what it is. From looking at the big picture of the Bible to exploring the tough questions that might be getting in the way of your relationship with God. We're not going to use unnecessarily churchy language, and we're not pretending that we have all the answers. And the best bit, we'll never take more than 30 minutes of your time each week. We want to keep it simple and hopefully have some fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. In this week's episode, we continue our three-part series looking at the church and LGBT. Welcome back to the Simple Faith Podcast. We are on week two of the series looking at the church and LGBT. Yeah, and if you are tuning into this episode without listening to last week's episode, we really, really recommend turning back now. Like one of the most dangerous things that people do when it comes to like really challenging topics like this is to skip straight to what they might think is, you know, the the meaty stuff, the good stuff. But this episode and also next week's episode, they're almost useless without the ones that, that come before it. And You'll see why when we get to episode three in this series next week. If you've already listened to it or you're super determined not to listen to it, uh, here is a quick recap. So we looked at some key definitions. Uh, In particular, for the purpose of this conversation, we've separated the word homosexual into same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. And this will be an important distinction soon. Then we discuss where the church has gone wrong in the past with LGBT, which unfortunately seems to be quite a lot. And after that, we talked about how all humans are made in the image of God and how as Christians, our identity is primarily found in Christ and not our sexual orientation. Yeah, that's right. This is a really important statement to make as well, as it will lead directly into the next few crucial layers of this discussion as we, we talk about sexual intimacy, uh, singleness, and marriage. I think it's completely reasonable to claim that in today's culture, sexuality is identity. I mean, actually, this was kind of the case at the end of the last century, but 20 years into all the 21st century, I don't think it's ever been more true. Uh, I want to share some interesting stats with you. So according to the Recovery Village, 12% of all websites are pornographic. 12%, 25% of all search engine requests are related to sex and the average age of first exposure to pornography, get this, is only 11 years old. Let that sink in. And with the rise of dating apps, the barriers have have never been more low to finding a partner for a casual hookup. Actually, I found this organization called the Woodhull Freedom Foundation and it makes this lofty claim. Are you ready? It says, Too often suppressed under the weight of societal mores, norms, and inherited tradition, sexual freedom deserves attention and validation. When we embrace sexual freedom, we embrace human rights as a whole. Only then can we truly acknowledge, protect, and celebrate the unique individuality of every being. Whoa, that's That's a bold claim. So according to the Woodhull Freedom Foundation, embracing sexual freedom is is embracing human rights as a whole. And they're saying that, well, only then can we celebrate and protect every being. If you're listening to this and thinking, yeah, actually, 
I agree with that, then you might believe that denying sexual freedom is kind of tantamount to denying someone's very identity as a human being. So we have to ask this big question. Is that statement true? Like, is sexual freedom that vital? Are the way things going with our culture healthy? Are they biblical? What, do, what does the Bible say? Ultimately, that's what, what matters, right? Not what anyone else thinks, not what we think. It's what the Bible says. That's what we think matters as Christians. Yeah, that's right. And maybe perhaps like we did last week, it would be good to define some of what we're talking about here. The Bible talks about sexual immorality in a lot of places. For example, you have Matthew 15, 19, Ephesians 5, 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, and quite a few more, actually. In the church, we often talk about sexual immorality, and most of us have a fairly good idea of what that means. But what specifically does that mean? That's a good question. You know, the word that we often translate as sexual immorality in the Bible is, it's a Greek word. And it's called, are you ready for this? It's, it's porneia which unsurprisingly, uh, you might be able to guess, is where we get the word pornography from. And it kind of refers to a sort of uh, surrendering of purity. And in general, it kind of refers to all sexual activity outside of of marriage. And and as we'll talk about, uh, sexual intimacy isn't just okay in the context of marriage. It's, It's like actively encouraged. But outside of marriage, the biblical standard considers it sin and Maybe we should pause there because in, in today's world, today's sex-saturated world, that might be hard for you to hear. You know, for, for me, as someone who didn't give my life to Jesus until I was 19, that was actually the hardest thing to hear. It was something I really wrestled with. But I also know that once I came to terms with it, I realized now how wonderful how great, how life-giving, and how foundational that truth is. But we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, so here's a question. If sexual immorality is considered to be any sexual activity outside of marriage, what should singleness look like? <laughs> um, are you ready for another uh, soapbox moment? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay, here we go. As the church singleness is something that we've handled almost as badly as we've handled the LGBT discussion. You know, if your experience of church is anything like mine, you'd probably assume that singleness is viewed negatively in the Bible. Like you might think that, that that's why Christians get married young or, or at least younger than non-believers. Uh, I know that as a young believer, a new believer at, you know, maybe 20, 21, uh, trying to find a wife in my 20s, I, w- I was constantly asked questions like, hey, have you found a wife yet? Or so when are you going to settle down and, and things like that? And I, I hated it. Like, I don't mind saying and, and maybe being vulnerable here and saying I hugely struggled with singleness. I was, I was nearly 27 when Shreya and I got married. And maybe I was even older. Was I 27? Yeah, yeah I, I, think think you, I think you were. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was should 20, know. <laughs> 27. No, maybe I was 28. Yeah, I was 28. I was 28 <laughs> when we got married. So that gives you an idea. I, was, like, I felt like I was getting on a bit there as, as a Christian. I started to feel like maybe something wasn't quite right about me or, you know, I felt left out when couples went on like double dates and things like that. Like it was, for me, a tough, tough season. And I think a large part of that is because the church as a whole, has a warped view of of singleness. 
You know, we mentioned a guy last week called Preston Sprinkle, who we, we quoted. And uh, I want to quote something else that he said this week, because he says a lot of good things. Here, here it is. Most Christians view singleness as an interim stage, you know, a period of life that you have to get through, kind of like standing in line for a ride at Disneyland. No one wants to be there, but we must grin and bear it so that we can jump on a rocket and swirl around the Matterhorn. I don't know if that's an appropriate analogy, but it sounds it sounds kind of intense to me. Anyway, maybe you can relate to this. Uh, I know I certainly could, but but let's talk about what the Bible says about singleness. And let me tell you, it doesn't line up with my church experience, and I wouldn't be surprised if it, it doesn't line up with yours either. Okay, listen to, to this. In 1 Corinthians 7, it says, Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Well, notice that. Notice that it's saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now that doesn't jive with our cultural understanding in any way, does it? That's, that sounds very countercultural. And later on in that chapter, Paul even says that singleness is a gift. And this is where we need to be really clear, just because, you know, culture is pretty messy on this. You know, when we're talking about singleness, we're not saying casually sexually active, casually meeting a few people on Tinder, casually having a few hookups and all that stuff. Biblically, to be single means abstaining from all sexual activity. In other words, to be celibate. That's the word we often talk about, celibate. Uh, Paul encourages celibate singleness. In fact, he writes about how those who marry will face many troubles in this life and that uh, and that unmarried people can serve the Lord wholeheartedly in a way that married couples just can't. And that's later again in 1 Corinthians 7. So in, in a culture that views singleness as a restriction or maybe even a punishment, Paul encourages us that singleness is for our own good so that we can live in, in the right way and in uninterrupted devotion to the Lord. Singleness helps us to look to the only thing in this world that we need, not a husband or a wife, but Jesus. Okay, so I'm finishing my soapbox moment, don't worry, but the church has to do a better job with its single believers to ensure that they feel welcome, uh, included, and, and listen to this, this is really important, that they feel enough as they are. We have to, we must stop asking single Christians when they're going to find a husband or wife or why they aren't married yet. I get it. I get that it's well-intentioned. I've been tempted to do it in the past, in the very recent past even, but it's just not helpful and it doesn't help celebrate the joys of singleness. And on the other hand, and this is super important too, single people must have a balanced and informed view of marriage. Here's the thing, if they don't, uh, Tim Keller writes in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says, if they don't, they will either over-desire or under-desire marriage, and either of those ways of thinking will distort their lives. Yeah, that's really good. So, in summary, sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of marriage, and God tells us that this is sinful. And the Bible also teaches us that singleness isn't a curse or a cross to bear. It's actually a privilege that God blesses us with so that we can serve him with total devotion. And this is an area that we really think that both the church and our culture has hugely gone off tracks with in general. Exactly. 
So I think this is a good point to pause, but after the break, let's talk about the other side of the discussion. If singleness is a good thing, what does the Bible say about marriage? Find out after the break. Okay, so before we get going again, I just wanted to remind you that you can actually access a transcript of this episode along with the books we quoted in our show notes at simplefaithpodcast.com. And we love to hear from you, so feel free to contact us through the website or direct message us through Instagram. And by the way, if you find this podcast helpful, maybe you would consider subscribing, rating, sharing this podcast with other people. It would honestly mean so much to us and show a lot of support for this podcast. But anyways, let's get back to the show. So we've talked about how singleness is good. Dave, what does the Bible say about marriage? Firstly, let me start by saying that just because singleness is good, it doesn't therefore mean that marriage is bad. So often we try to dichotomize things. We try to make it black and white. In fact, both are good. Marriage is a wonderful God-ordained covenant, we've used that word before, that lasting contract that's been a part of humanity since the dawn of human creation. You know, as we said in the last part, humanity is encouraged to have sexual intercourse right from the very beginning. In Genesis 1.28, God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and, and that's in many other places in the Bible too. But, but here's the thing, in Genesis 2, we see that it's clearly in the context of marriage. So in Genesis 2.18, God says that it's, it's, it's not good that man is alone and uh, therefore God creates a partner for him, a female partner for him. And then in Genesis 2.24, the Bible declares that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So those statements alone imply three things about marriage. First of all, number one, both partners need to be human, which seems kind of obvious, right? But maybe it wasn't obvious at the time. Number two, both partners must come from different families. And number three, it appears to be showing that both partners in marriage must display sexual difference. Now, we talked about this verse last episode. It's quoted by Jesus. But here's the really interesting part about Jesus quoting this passage. And I hope you're following me because this is really important. When Jesus quotes this passage, he doesn't just quote it on its own. What he does is he combines it. You know about leaving a father and mother and becoming one flesh. He combines it with that passage about being made in the image of God, male and female in the image of God. So being made in the image of God as male and female is clearly important to the marriage discussion. Why? Well, because Jesus said it. And of course, there's a lot more to this discussion, but it's worth taking note before we continue. Paul also quotes this passage, by the way, in Ephesians 5.31, by the way, but he takes the imagery slightly uh, in a different direction. He recognizes that marriage is a mystery and he does something really interesting. He directly compares marriage between a man and woman to Christ and the church. Uh, let me share yet another quote from Preston Sprinkle because it's just so good. Human marriage is a reflection of this supreme heavenly marriage between Christ and his people. It's one of the reasons why Christians are resistant to allowing marriage to be defined in such a way as to include gay couples. A man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot reflect the union of Christ and the church. Instead, these only reflect Christ and Christ or church and church. Now, some of you might think that this is a bit of a stretch, and I think that's totally fair. 
uh, I, I want to highlight that we are far from done in this discussion yet. This is just one piece of a much larger puzzle. The key thing to take away in this very short time that we have to cover such a hugely broad topic is that there's something important about being made male and female in the image of God and becoming one flesh. About marriage being between one man and one woman. Why? Because Jesus himself combines those crucial verses together. And perhaps because of the way Paul compares the church and Christ using the very same verses. That's great. And yeah, I think it's really important stuff to point out. Um, So can I take this conversation just in a slightly different direction here? One question I can think that might be raised here um, is if marriage is between one man and one woman, why were there so many polygamous marriages in, in the Bible? I know that me and you, Dave, have talked a bit about polyamory before, and that's the idea that you can be in more than one loving sexual relationship simultaneously. Uh, so this is something that is definitely on the rise, and maybe this question is then a bit more important than it has been before in the past. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And firstly, I want to say that, yes, Sharia and I have talked about the concept of polyamory. But Oh, yeah, but don't <laughs> let me, the way I phrase that, be confusing to you. <laughs> I can understand how people might get confused. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about the concept of polyamory because it's getting more and more popular in mainstream media. And so let's talk about what that looks like. Uh, I think the passages we've looked at in in Genesis and Jesus' words in Matthew 19 seem to make it pretty clear that monogamy is uh, God's intention for a relationship. You know, in other words, one person with one person. Notice that it says that the two will become one flesh, not not more than that, uh, just the two will become one. And in that passage in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about how marriage between a man and a woman is like Christ and his bride, singular, not brides, plural. And uh, I think it's in 1 Timothy 3 where it says that polygamy is forbidden for church elders. So that's probably a good sign. Oh, and in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 that we looked at a little bit earlier, it talks about how uh, each man should have one wife and each woman her own husband. So uh, that's pretty convincing to me. But then there's other passages in Ephesians and Colossians that talk about specific marriage between a husband and a wife. Uh, And you get the idea. I think I could go on here. I think first and foremost, polygamy is definitely ruled out. Uh, that's clear. And polyamorous sexual relationships outside of marriage are included in that sexual immorality bit that we talked about earlier. Does that answer the question okay? Yeah. And I think also it's it's worth mentioning that not everything that's recorded in the Bible is automatically approved in the Bible, right? So like God tolerated polygamy for a while under certain conditions, but that doesn't mean that it was the way that it was intended to be. It wasn't the way that it was intended to be. Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably the best way to answer the question off the top of my head. Is that all right? Yeah, that's great. Um, So maybe Dave, you could summarize for us just this case that we've built so far. Yeah, for sure. So over the last two episodes, this is kind of where we've landed and we're building a case here. So stick with us. I know it might be hard to follow, uh, but again, remember you can get those show notes on simplefaithpodcast.com. So here we go. Firstly, we said that the church hasn't handled LGBT stuff very well. Frankly, we need to repent. That's a really important starting point. Secondly, we talked about how we are all humans made in the image of God, but as Christians, our identity is primarily as children of God. And this has to be far more important than our sexual identities. That is the main thing. Uh, 
Okay, thirdly, on top of that, we said that we live in this dangerously sexualized world where our sexual identities are treated like they are they're everything. And let's be real, they're not. They are not everything. In fact, the Bible teaches us that A, sexual activity outside of marriage is considered sin and that falls way short of God's good and perfect plans for us. And, and B, that singleness is another area where the church has really uh, let its people down. Uh, singleness is actually encouraged and it's a good thing. And we need to help people see that God honoring biblical truth. Okay, so that's 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 another step. The next one is that, that marriage is God-given and wonderful, but only ever described in the Bible as between one male and one female. This is important because of the way Jesus combined the, the two passages in Genesis with one another, and it's reaffirmed by Paul in Ephesians in the way that he talks about Christ and the church. So sexual intimacy isn't just allowed in marriage, but actively encouraged. And finally, we've talked about how polygamy and polyamory are wrong. And all of that stuff, though we've blasted through it and rushed through it is really important in laying the groundwork for next week's episode where we discuss the passages directly addressing LGBT issues. Great. So that ends our discussion this week. Everything now I think is primed and ready to go for our final episode of this series. If you have any questions, encouragements, or constructive comments, we would really love to hear them from you. It means so much to hear from our listeners. Like, really, really, it does. Um, and finally, don't forget to check out the transcript of these show notes at simplefaithpodcast.com. Have a really great week, everyone. Bye. Bye.